I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. So we continue our series through this letter to the Hebrews, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. This morning it will be much closer to verse by verse than chapter by chapter, since we will be considering Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon our God once again to ask for his merciful help. Please pray with me. Father, as we prepare to hear your perfect word to us this morning, we ask that for those this morning who do not know you, that you would create faith within them. For those who are weary in the journey, that you would keep faith within them. And as those, for those who are nearing the end of the journey, you would complete faith in them. For we know that your son is the author. He is the sustainer. And he is the perfecter of our faith. So have mercy upon us this morning. Help us this morning by the power of your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God to you. I can only imagine what it must be like to run in the Olympics in a stadium full of cheering spectators, especially if you are running in your home nation. To run to the sound of thousands of people who are for you and cheering you on must be exhilarating. A home crowd is a great gift to an athlete, for success in sports depends as much on the psychology of the athlete as it does on the physicality. And so, as the author of Hebrews compares in the verses you just heard the Christian life to an athletic contest, especially to a race, he encourages his readers that God has supplied them with a great gift of a great cloud of witnesses. For throughout this letter, which I've argued is really more of a sermon, 
the author has reminded the Hebrews of several gifts that God has given them. In chapter 4, he encouraged them saying, we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens. God has given us a great high priest, and that precipitated his command, let us hold fast our confession. In chapter 10, he likewise encouraged his readers saying, we have great confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And that anticipated the command, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So you notice that the author will repeatedly tell the Hebrews what they have before he tells them what they must do. He follows this formula, since we have A, let us do B. For God's grace always precedes God's commands. He always gives to us everything we need to do what he demands of us. And so you see the same pattern here in chapter 12. After slowly walking through the examples of faithful endurance who successfully ran the, the race, the author moves on to his application. In other words, he's, he's told us of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rahab and Gideon and Samson. He says, okay, what's, what's the point? What do I want you to learn from these examples? But the application begins again with what the Hebrews already have. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, or more literally, since we ourselves have so great a cloud of witnesses about us. So just as we have a great high priest and we have great confidence, he tells us, we have a great cloud of witnesses. And combined with the language of a race, this great cloud of witnesses, which was a, a common way in ancient times to describe a, a crowd of people, the author is inviting the readers to imagine an amphitheater filled with cheering spectators. But there are two differences in this description. First, he tells us this is a great cloud of witnesses, not fans. In other words, these, th this crowd is not there so much to see the runner as they are there for the runner to see them. They're not just cheering him on to finish, they are the proof that he can and will finish. So the stadium is filled with those who have successfully run the same race that the current runner is running. And so the author is saying, every time that you grow weary as you're running and you're thinking, I can't do this, just look around you and you'll see all of those who are in the same position you are now, and yet they cross the finish line. They are, they are proof. They are evidence. They are witnesses, not just saying you can do it, but saying, I did it. So you know you can do it. 
However, the second difference is that the crowd is not actually on earth where the runner can see and hear them. They are a cloud of witnesses, which I think to some degree implies this is a heavenly crowd, not an earthly crowd. So the, the Christian runner's reality is more akin to running in an opposing stadium as opposed to uh, running in your home stadium. See, on earth now, Christians are always the away team. We're not the home team. But even though we can't currently see and hear this cloud of witnesses, we can know that we have them and we can learn from and be encouraged by them as we see and hear them through the written word of God. So this great cloud is a great gift. They are part of God's grace to us to help us do what he demands of us. And what does God demand of us? Well, here is the main command in this text. The main verb, the main action is let us run. Everything else in these verses supports that activity, running. So God has given this great cloud of witnesses to help us run. But you'll notice the author doesn't just say run. He says run with endurance, which implies this is not going to be a short race. If you have healthy working legs, almost anybody can run at least for a few seconds or a few minutes. It's, it's not a great feat to just run a little bit with your feet. The hard thing is to keep running once you start, once you start to realize this hurts, once you're gasping for air, you think that I don't know why I'm running. This is not enjoyable. So God doesn't just demand that the Christian run. He demands that the Christian keep running. You must run with endurance, which means you're not just to believe once, you're to keep believing. You don't just obey once, you must keep obeying. You don't just pray, you keep praying. You don't just worship, you keep worshiping. You don't just love, you keep loving. You keep serving, you keep giving, you keep sacrificing. So Christians are to run, and Christians are to keep running. So we've heard throughout this letter, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So here's the other complicating factor. You don't get to determine which race you run. You don't decide whether it's a, a 5K or a half marathon or a full marathon. You don't get to decide if you run in Chicago or in Boston. The race has been set before you, and God is the one who has set the race before you. He determines its boundaries, its direction, and its length. And so you have to run wherever the race takes you, which may not always feel like a straight and level path. It may have twists and turns. It may gain or lose elevation. It may be level or uneven terrain. That is not for you to decide. The race is in God's hands, and you simply must run as he demands. 
but how can you run with endurance? Well, this is where the great cloud of witnesses becomes a great gift because they teach you how to run. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also. Now, that also is crucial because it means you're going to run the way that they ran. As we look to the cloud of witnesses, therefore, we learn how to run with endurance. So what do they teach us? What are the essentials for long distance running? Well, from their witness, you must learn two essentials for long distance running. Number one, you must learn what to lay aside. If you're to run with endurance, you need to be aware of what will enhance your endurance, but also you need to be aware of what will hinder your endurance. What is going to strengthen your ability and will to keep running and what is going to diminish or weaken your will and ability to keep running. You need to know what spurs you on and you need to know what slows you down. The author begins with the latter. In order to run with endurance, you need to lay aside. You need to get rid of everything that will hinder your endurance and slow you down in the race. Now, it's possible that the author is describing one hindrance, which he first metaphorically describes as a weight and then clarifies, saying, what I mean by this weight is sin. So I'm just talking about one reality. But I actually think it's better to understand two hindrances. One which he just describes generally as a weight. A second which he describes specifically as sin. And I'll begin with sin because that's the more obvious hindrance to endurance. Because if running is speaking here of faithfully obeying the Lord, and sin is by definition disobeying the Lord, then it's plain and obvious that sinning will hinder your ability to run. It's the exact opposite of running with endurance. And so the more you give in to sin, the harder it will be to keep running. The closer that sin clings to you means you're, you're clinging closely to sin and it's going to drag you down and it is going to distract you as you run. See, that's what sin does. Sin clings. It begins to cling to your mind and to your will and to your affections. And as it does, it just slowly starts to pull you down, to drain you of energy. Now, it can drag you down in the, the sense that it just causes you to trip, stumble, and fall. Like if you're running on a path and there's roots growing above ground and you just trip and boom, you fall fat, flat on your face. Sin can drag you down in that sense. Sin can also drag you down in the sense of discouraging you. It's just like a, a constant whisper that you're not good enough. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe it's whispering, God isn't good enough. And so it drags you down as it hinder and hinders endurance, either through blatant disobedience or just through general discouragement over time. 
However, the clinging grip of sin doesn't always attempt to drag you down and keep you from running at all. Sometimes sin is just content to distract you. As it wraps its tendrils around your thoughts and your will and your affections, it tries to simply lead you in a different direction. See, sin doesn't really care if you're running as long as you're not running toward God. So if it can get you to start looking any other direction, it's content. So at times, sin distracts and draws you away like the the sirens calling out to Odysseus and his men. They're they're luring you from the set course with the sickeningly sweet song of sin. For if it can draw your affections from God to lesser pleasures, if it can lead you to desire a lesser prize, well, then you will not keep running the race with endurance. See, this is the thing about sin. It promises you pleasure, but at the same time, what it is doing is stealing your pleasure from you. It can't give you surpassing pleasure than what God gives you, but it can diminish your delight in God. Oh, how many have failed to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus because they have heeded that siren call of sin and leapt to their doom. But sin doesn't always distract with pleasure. Sometimes sin will distract you just with trouble. Like Peter on the sea, sin draws your attention to the wind and the waves of circumstance, to the pain in your legs, to the burning in your lungs, and to the length of the course, which just starts to feel longer and longer. You no longer see the pleasure of the prize. You just feel the pain of the path. And so when sin clings closely, it drags, it draws, and it distracts. And so I ask you this morning, do you have sins that are clinging closely to your mind, to your will, to your affections that maybe nobody else knows about? And it's just weighing you down day after day. It slows you down as you try to run. Is your attention distracted by these pleasures? And by these troubles. If so, then I encourage you this morning, even as you sit in your pew, cry out to the Lord of freedom who has promised he can set you free from the slavery of sin. It doesn't mean all all temptation, all sinful desires immediately going to go away or ever go away entirely on this earth. But do not give in to that sense of discouraging despair that says, I just, I can't overcome it. The spirit of the Lord, who is the spirit of freedom, is greater than the ensnaring power of your sin. So cry out to the Lord. Find someone you trust and confess your sin. Bring it into the light. But sin is not the only hindrance that will slow you down. See, our author tells us to first lay aside every weight. See, in the ancient games, runners would prepare to run by 
removing their clothes. I'm very thankful this is not standard racing technique anymore. I would not watch the Olympics if they were all nude. But they would get rid of anything that would slow them down. And of course, athletes, the, the fittest athletes in the world, they're not just trying to get rid of external weights. They are trying to keep their bodies as slim, get rid of every extra pound that will slow them down. It's hard to run when you are weighed down. But if this weight isn't referring specifically to sin, what does the author mean by weight? I think he simply means anything that slows you down. You see, I think we often function as salvation minimalists. And as we think about what we're reading and what we're watching and what we're eating and what we're listening to, how we use our rest and recreation, the only question we're asking ourselves is, is this technically sin? Is this an obvious violation of God's law? And if we think, no, this isn't that bad, this isn't technically sin, well, then we just go ahead and do it. Is it really sin if I play or watch sports on the Lord's day? Is it really sin if I watch this TV show? Is it sin if I spend money on this particular item? And of course, if the answer to that question is, yes, it is sin, then you, you don't do it. But I don't believe that's actually the, the only or even the primary question you should be asking is you think about what do I spend my time on? What do I give my thoughts to? What do I give my affections to? I think the better question is, will this help me run the race with endurance? Not just is this technically sin. Is this going to actually help me keep running? Will this help me want to read my Bible more, pray more, sing praise more, obey more, give more, sacrifice more? See, the Christian is not asking, what is the bare minimum I need to do to cross the finish line? No, the Christian is asking, what will help me run the race to the best of my God-given, grace-fueled ability? We are salvation maximalists, not minimalists. Now, I'm not saying every waking moment of your life needs to be devoted to obviously spiritual things. And I'm not actually trying to answer that question for each of you directly, as if the answer is going to be the same for everyone. There are some things that might enhance one person and hinder another. There may be good things that for you would become ultimate things, and whenever good things become ultimate things, then it's going to become an extra weight to you and slow you down. As Sinclair Ferguson says, if the race is everything, then let everything else find its place in relation to the race, which again means as you think about every decision you're making, the question ought to be, is this going to help me keep running the race? Will this increase my joy in Jesus? We must lay aside every weight 
as well as every sin which clings so closely and which would impede our progress. So you must learn what to lay aside, but that's not the only essential. Number two, you must also learn where to look. See, we need to know what slows us down, but we also need to know what is going to spur us on. And for the Christian, this is all about where we fix our gaze as we run. And so the author tells us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. The Christian will run with endurance when he keeps looking to Jesus. Now notice here, the author uses just the personal name of Jesus. There's no exalted titles attached here. It's not Jesus, the Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. I, I could be wrong here. But I think by just using the personal name, the author is again trying to help us eye Jesus, particularly in his humanity here. Not that you can ever separate the humanity and divinity of Christ, but he again, as he did earlier, especially in chapter 2, wants us to, to find the comfort and feel the intimate warmth of understanding that the Son of God identified with us in our humanity. So he just again calls him Jesus. For in the name Jesus, we recall how he shared our flesh and blood, how he partook of the same thing so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver us from fear and slavery. In the name of Jesus, we recall how merciful and faithful he is, how he suffered in every way like us as he was tempted. And so he is able and willing and eager to comfort and help us when we face that same temptation. All of the tender mercy and sympathy of the Lord is found in that name, Jesus. And there is no sight that will spur you on like the spiritual sight of your Lord. For in Jesus, you always see the friend and the champion of sinning sufferers and suffering sinners. In Jesus, you see the fullest evidence of what is unseen. You hold the substance of what you hope for. Just we learned like we learned in chapter 11. That's what faith is doing in action. It is seeing the unseen. It is holding the hoped for. And there is no greater reality of that when the, than when faith looks to Jesus. And in Jesus, you see what all of those other heroes of the faith that we learned about, you see what they were looking to. For in desiring a, a better country and city, like we were told, that means they were ultimately desiring the kingdom of God where Christ would reign. In suffering the reproach of Christ, they sought the greater treasure that is Christ. So what does this great cloud of witnesses teach us as we look to them? They teach us where to look. And they looked to Jesus. Now they could only see the shadow of his promised coming. 
we get the clearer sight of the promise fulfilled. So we can see Jesus even better than they could see him. How much more should we be able to run with endurance? The great cloud of witnesses teaches you to look to the great witness who is Jesus. Their faith was but an imperfect foreshadow of his perfect faith. And so you look to Jesus because, as we're told, he is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Means he's the ideal runner who said to us in Matthew 11, you learn from me. For there's never been a better runner of faith than Jesus. No one has suffered humiliation like him. No one has endured like him. And so who better to look to than the best runner who ever ran? If you want to learn how to do something well, you watch those who are the best at it. That actually works with Jesus. I spent a lot of time as a kid watching Michael Jordan play basketball. It didn't actually translate into me becoming better at basketball. But when you watch Jesus, you will get better at running. For founder means champion or pioneer. Perfector means finisher. So he is the one who has brought faith to its completion and its perfect expression. He is the embodiment of heroic faith. He is the one who brought faith across the finish line. He blazed the trail. He won the race. And so you look to him that you might run as he ran and finish as he finished. But as the founder and finisher of faith, he's more than just an example for you to imitate. If all he is is just an example, well, then it's just going to be like me watching Michael Jordan. You're, you're not actually going to get better because, let's face it, you don't have the same natural abilities. No, he's not just your example. He is the very source and sustainer of your faith. He creates it. He keeps it. He completes it. So he ran before you, but he still runs beside you. His race is your race. His finish is your finish. So you look to him, yes, as the perfect example of faith, but you also look to him as the perfect power of your faith. You're running by his power. You also look to Jesus, though, because I believe seeing how he ran for you in love will awaken your love as you run for him. See, there's no greater motivation in Christian loving, in, in Christian running than love. In fact, I don't, I don't believe there's any greater motivation in all of life to do anything than when you are motivated to do that thing out of love for another person. But we know that the Christian is not a Christian because he first loved God. We know that a Christian is a Christian because God first loved him. And you see no greater expression of God's love for you than in Jesus, who we are told in verse 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus ran with endurance because Jesus was running towards his joy. 
But what was his joy that God set before him? What, what was this joy he's running to? Now, certainly his joy was the glory of his father. Jesus is abundantly clear. Everything I do, I do because I want my father glorified. And there's nothing that makes me happier than when I see my father exalted. Yes, that's his joy. His joy is also certainly his own exaltation on the other side of death and resurrection. We know that God exalted Jesus because of his faithful endurance in humiliation. So because he endured the cross, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the glory of the Father, the exaltation of the Son, this is Jesus' joy. But that's not the only aspect of Jesus' joy. Do you want to know what, what else constituted the joy of Jesus that he was running towards? It was you. It was you, Christian. Jesus endured the cross, despising the humiliating shame because he wanted to have you. You are his joy, his treasured possession. Do you, do you doubt me? Do you think about that? No, that's making this gospel way too man-centered. Now, there would be a way to make that too man-centered, but this is absolutely biblical. You see this in the Old Testament. You see this in the New Testament. How does God describe Israel, his chosen people, in Exodus 19.5? He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Treasured possession. And what does Peter say of God's new covenant people? He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So why did God choose his people before the foundation of the world? Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. He loved us and he wanted us for himself. So Jesus was sent to bring God's treasured people to the Father. The Father wanted you because the Father loved you. But the son wanted you to. That's why he willingly went to the cross. For how does Paul frame his command to husbands in Ephesians 5? He says, husbands, love your wives. How? What, what's this love supposed to look like? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself. He wanted his bride, his beloved bride. 
And so as Jesus prepares for the cross, John says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Christ's love for his people brought him all the way to the end of the cross. So Jesus endured to the end because he was spurred on by the love of his people. It makes me so sad how often Christians struggle with a sense of the love of God for them. Because I meet with so many of you and you just, just I, I don't know that God loves me. Dear brother and sister in Christ, how could he have displayed greater love for you than by sending his son and his son saying, I am going to go to the cross because I want to have you. I want to be with you. Now, I don't understand why God wants to be with us, but I thank the Lord that he does. Do you see how much the Lord loves you? He despised the shame of the cross because he desired your salvation and your salvation required the cross. You are his joy. How can you not long to run for the one that has loved you like that? Does his love for you not awaken your love for him? Does it not strengthen you to keep running with endurance, inflamed with love for your loving Jesus? But not only does looking to Jesus incite you to run out of love for him, it incites you to run with love to him. And this is lastly why you run looking to Jesus, because Jesus is the one you're running to. It's race 101 that you keep your eyes ahead of you on the finish line and you don't look behind you. Jesus is the one at the finish line. Jesus is the finish line. Will there be any moment as sweet in all eternity is when you finally get to see with your eyes and feel and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ who will embrace you and whisper to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I cannot wait for that moment when I get to hug Jesus. And that's coming. Don't you dare think that heaven is just, you, you go up there and say, like, there's Jesus, great. Now you go do your thing. You're going to be hugged by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we run for Jesus. We run to Jesus. So when you lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, you are now free to run with endurance looking to Jesus. And one day you will get to cling closely to him. Isn't that a great motivation to get rid of every sin that's clinging closely to you? When you cast that aside, you now get to cling to Jesus. For he is the founder of faith. He is the finisher of faith. He is the finish line of faith. So run and run with endurance. 
run with Jesus, run to Jesus, run with him as your pleasure, and you will run in the light of his pleasure. It's still one of my favorite lines from any movie ever made when Eric Little in Chariots of Fire says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Christian, you must run with endurance, but that doesn't mean it's miserable running. Whether it's on that straight level path or whether it's twisting and turning and it starts to become uneven and hard along the way. So are you weary? Are you weak? Are you distracted? Are you drained? Are you discouraged? Are you dragged down? Well, keep this thought in your mind. Let this be your first thought every morning you wake up. For Christian, every morning you wake up, you are one day closer to the finish line. You are one day closer to Christ and heaven. You see, for the Christian, no matter how old we get, we can honestly say the best is yet to come. Your best days are never behind you as a Christian. They are always before you. So if you desire to run with endurance, you must run toward your joy. And that means you must run toward your Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we are often weak, we are often weary, we are often distracted, discouraged, and dragged down by weight and sin. I pray now that you would give us grace to lay aside every weight and sin that is hindering our endurance. And would you lift our gaze to look to Jesus that the sight of him would spur us on. I thank you that you have loved us in Christ far more than we will ever be able to comprehend. But I do pray that you would help us comprehend it a little bit more right now by the grace of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.